Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's other co-host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm very excited to welcome Andrew Miller, the founder and chief operating officer at Current Therapeutics. Thanks for joining us today, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Great. So we'd love to start off just with your background, your career journey, and how you got to what you're working on today. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a PhD scientist by training, have a chemical engineering PhD from MIT. And during grad school, really kind of caught the entrepreneurial bug, as I think many of us have here in in the Boston area, and had the opportunity after finishing my graduate work to join a group called Pure Tech Ventures. I'm at the time operated similar to kind of an early stage venture group. And I spent about eight or nine years there really working to try to start new healthcare and life science focused companies. So it was a real kind of tour de force apprenticeship in entrepreneurship. Met a lot of great people there and actually became very interested in general in the field of psychiatry. And that eventually led to a real interest in schizophrenia, which then led to eventually the founding of Karuna and my transition then from Pure Tech to Karuna as one of the, I guess, the, the first full-time employee at that point. Awesome. So, you know, in that regard, obviously, uh, it sounds like you have a really interesting background and I'm sure one that has probably been enriched by your experiences as an entrepreneur. I would love to learn a little bit more about the path you took, uh, whether it be your time at PureTech or otherwise, that led you to founding Kern in the first place. Yeah, well, I think part of it is, you know, I, I sort of developed interest and passion for the field of mental health. You know, I think, unfortunately, mental health is generally looked at from a drug development perspective as a pretty challenging field. But what has always been a constant is really the idea there's always been an unmet need, right? If the technical challenges have been difficult to overcome, and we can talk a little bit about that, but this has always been an area where there really is a need for new treatments and particularly schizophrenia. You know, we do have available antipsychotic medicines that are the standard of care, but they really all kind of date back to the original serendipitous discovery of chlorpromazine, the first antipsychotic drug in 1952. We didn't know it at the time, but it was a dopamine D2 receptor antagonist, and every medicine that's currently approved for the treatment of schizophrenia has that same kind of primary pharmacology. And so, you know, as many areas of medicine and treatment have taken, you know, pretty tremendous leaps forward over the last couple of decades, unfortunately, in schizophrenia, we really haven't had those same advances. And so, you know, the idea of starting Karuna is kind of wrapped up actually in why we named the company Karuna, sort of. Uh, compassionate action or an action to reduce um, the suffering of others. And it really felt like that captured, you know, kind of the essence of what we're trying to do from a development perspective, really interested in hopefully developing something that's unique and potentially paradigm changing for the treatment of schizophrenia. Great, Andrew. And we all have varying paths to our entrepreneurial journey. If you were to look back at when you started Corona, what would you tell your younger self or what, what's something that you wish you had known at that time? I guess I, if I can look back, you know, the biggest thing that I would do is really just offer, honestly, just some encouragement, right? I mean, I think so much about entrepreneurship is just taking on the challenge. 
you know, as you guys probably do, you know, you get grad students or former colleagues, people like, how do I get involved in this? You know, I'm interested in it. And, you know, there's a lot of opportunities in 2021 to get involved in entrepreneurship, especially in life sciences in a way that was probably pretty challenging, quite frankly, 10 or 15 years ago. And so I think you have this perception of risk and, you know, what, what if it doesn't work? And I think we operate in such a healthy ecosystem right now from an entrepreneurship perspective. I mean, there's been some changes in how companies are started. And I think it's in some ways harder to be an individual entrepreneur, but there's a lot of ideas. There's a lot of people interested and, you know, it just feels like I wish I maybe would have felt a little bit more like, yeah, go, go and do this. You have this idea. Don't be afraid to follow it. You know, that's what I, when I tell people as well, when they ask me about this is sort of, you know, just, just find a way to get involved and, and then follow the journey. Now, as you reflect back, what are some ways to get involved early on? What are some common paths that you've seen that have ended up working quite well? Well, I would say for myself, a big part of that was, you know, back being a PhD student where you had not necessarily more time, but perhaps a little less responsibility in life. It was a great opportunity to just really pursue what you're interested in. It was really kind of the first steps of getting to know people who were involved in the ecosystem kind of building some of those connections and maybe making it just a little more tangible, right? I think at the start, it seemed like, who are these people that do this and how, how do they do it? But as you get into it, you realize that the people aren't so different perhaps than yourself. So I think that was a great opportunity because it was pretty risk-free, right? I could go and take a you know an entrepreneurship lab course where you were consulting for startup companies. They weren't paying you anything. You weren't responsible for what happened with it, but it gave you a chance to really kind of get involved and you know, PureTech was also a great opportunity for me. And there's a lot more groups that have a interest in kind of starting new companies as an institution, right? I think the venture model has gone that way a lot over the last 10 years as well. But I think there's just so many, so many startup companies. I mean, I'm biased because, you know, we're based in Boston where there's a new company started every day, but there's just lots of opportunities to get involved. And it doesn't have to be the perfect opportunity. It doesn't have to feel like this is the opportunity I've been waiting for, but they all offer an opportunity, I think, to get involved. And I, I think really part of it is just taking some of those first steps. Great. Thanks for sharing that advice. We'd love to now hear, given your vantage point, just how you think about the overall landscape in the CNS space. And if you could just set the stage for us, please. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mentioned a little bit of it already, but this is an area where there's, I would say, been a lack of interest or a feigning interest on the part of a lot of major pharmaceutical companies. If you, you know, speaking specifically about schizophrenia, but I think it holds true for a lot of the other areas of CNS, certainly psychiatry. You know, 10 to 15 years ago, it was Pfizer, Merck, Lilly, AstraZeneca, BMS, you know, and most of those companies have sort of systematically exited their drug discovery and development efforts over time. And you know, that, that's because they've seen what they perceive to be more attractive opportunities in oncology and oligonucleotide therapeutics, whatever it may be. And so I think there is a, a lot less activity happening now than perhaps there was. And I think in some ways that presents an opportunity for entrepreneurship. I think we looked at that as an opportunity where, you know, again, the challenge has never been about a lack of need or a lack of opportunity. It's really been the technical challenges. How do you develop an innovative psychiatric medicine or antipsychotic drug in our case? How do you 
justify kind of the investment that's needed to get to that kind of phase two data readout, which is really, I think, the key point where you find out whether you have something in many areas of development, but particularly in CNS, where you know we don't have predictive animal models of psychosis or the negative and cognitive symptoms of schizophrenia. So it's really hard to get an idea of whether something's going to be safe and effective prior to the, you know, the time and, and capital it takes to get to the end of a phase two study. So I think that was really part of our mindset as well is we needed to have a strategy and the right science to kind of give ourselves what we thought was a better chance to overcome that, that challenge. And that really honed us in a lot on the technology space we came to. And really that focus came, you know, eventually to the sort of idea around Car XT as well. You know, in that circumstance, and when you're creating sort of Car XT, would love to hear a little bit about the evaluation criteria or the types of ways you saw it differentiated, perhaps, given how problematic, right, the CNS space has been historically. Yeah. I mean, and I will say that, you know, I looked at many different target classes, many different neurotransmitters. And, and by me, I mean, you know, scouring the literature, talking with investigators, talking with researchers, key opinion leaders, because I was in many ways coming into this field as a little bit of an outsider. And, you know, so, so how do you reduce that phase two risk? How, how do you get some sense of, hey, this might actually work before I get there? And, you know, I would say the one area that was really unique from that perspective, in my opinion, was muscarinic receptors. And that's because there was this kind of seminal discovery of xenomelin, a molecule that was originally developed by Lilly as a robust antipsychotic drug. It was a completely accidental or serendipitous discovery. It's the same way that the first antipsychotic drug was discovered. It was a molecule development for procognitive benefit in Alzheimer's disease. They took it into a phase two study in Alzheimer's, showed some modest procognitive benefit, but discovered you know, this really robust antipsychotic activity, it was dose dependent. They went and replicated that in a small scale schizophrenia study. So here was kind of this validated target. And so the issue wasn't efficacy and it actually wasn't long-term safety. It was one of short-term tolerability where because these muscarinic receptors were expressed not only in the brain, but in peripheral tissues, they had primarily GI side effects, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, caused a lot of dropouts in their study and, and they discontinued the molecule. And but because of that discovery, many people, including many of the companies I actually mentioned a few minutes ago, pursued this mechanism starting from the mid-90s. But due to a number of technical challenges from a chemistry perspective, some of our understanding of biology changed over time, people were never able to figure out how to harness the efficacy of xenomaline without having those same side effects. And as people began to slowly move away from psychiatric drug development, those efforts tended to fizzle out. And so, you know, sitting a number of of years ago, it's kind of like, well, here's an opportunity where if we can figure out a way to get around these tolerability concerns, we feel like we have something that can work in phase two. And that's really the key risk point. So it seemed like a lot more tractable problem to try to figure out how to overcome these tolerability concerns than it did to say, find a new target with a new molecule that had a real shot at working in that phase two setting. And so you know, that was kind of, in our minds, a big part of the excitement and certainly in my mind, a big part of the excitement. I think that eventually led in part, I think, because I was not an insider in this field, I hadn't spent 10 years working on this to come up with, you know, what I think is a somewhat 
simple but elegant, if I may say so myself, I, idea around CAR-XT where it said, look, you know, if the side effects are caused by peripheral muscarinic receptors, let's block those peripheral receptors with a, you know, a muscarinic antagonist that doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. And there will achieve the same goal that people have been, you know, working on, which is harness the efficacy of xenomaline, but eliminate the tolerability concerns. And so, you know, with that idea, you know, that was really kind of the launch point for the company. So that's kind of the background from a scientific perspective. I think the keys to that, right, there's some serendipity, there's some hard work, but in the end, I also think there was just the advantage of having a little bit of an outsider's perspective, not going in with a preconceived notion about what the solution would be. And I think that turned out to be a powerful perspective. If memory serves, uh, you were at PureTech at the time when you founded Karuna. I know there's a lot of different venture creation models, if you will, for biotech sure. companies these days. Would love to just hear maybe a little bit about what that experience was like at PureTech, as well as what it was like to found Karina, given that experience. Yeah, I, I think one of the great aspects of that environment was there was a lot of, I would say, intellectual freedom with the idea that you could pursue whatever you wanted as long as you can make a compelling case for it, right? It wasn't that there was no oversight or no one's paying attention to what you're doing, but I think there was a real entrepreneurial attitude of there's many different ways to do this. There's many different opportunities. You know, how do we provide some structure and framework and resources? I think really a network of people was critical in that, obviously. And so, you know, I think there was ability to kind of pursue what you were interested and passionate about. And that's certainly a very important part of entrepreneurship, right? I mean, to do this, you got to be really passionate and interested in, in what you're working on. And if you can be in an environment where there's some structure and, and some assistance and maybe a little bit of support that allows you to take a little more risk, you can really pursue the things that you really want to spend your time on. So I think it was very valuable from that perspective. And Andrew, since founding the company, obviously the company has transformed quite a bit over the eight plus years that you've been working on it now from you know an idea to now having a market cap north of 3 billion. Would love to understand how Karuna's environment has changed during that period. And just personally for you, how your role has evolved over time as well. Yeah, I, I think maybe to, to talk about the second part of that first, I mean, as with everyone, you know, as the company grows, your role changes a little bit. I mean, mine has narrowed more. That's been, I think, actually great because what it means is we're bringing in people who have more expertise than I do to take over certain things. And I would also maybe divide the company history into kind of two parts. You know, one I would say is kind of pre-phase two data readout, right? From a company perspective, I knew all along that that was going to be kind of the seminal moment, right? Does this idea work or, or not? Is, is this really going to have legs? So we were very focused on building something and getting to that data point in an efficient way, but also in, in a high quality way, right? We had one shot to kind of get that right. That was kind of a make it or break it moment for us. And so there's a lot of focus on that. So leading into that data readout, the team was obviously very R&D focused, as I think most startup companies are. I don't know actually when we hired our first full-time GNA employee, but it took some time. And there was a, I think, a very strong cultural alignment, right? We were all here for this kind of same purpose. I think because of some of the potential of what we we're working on, we were able to recruit a lot of people who had spent their whole careers working in psychiatry and, and neuroscience and were passionate about this as well. 
And then, you know, kind of the second phase of the company, I would say kind of post phase two data readout where all of a sudden your mindset, it doesn't do a 180, but it shifts a little bit from, hey, this actually worked. And I don't want to say like we were totally surprised, but we were pretty, pretty excited about it to all of a sudden you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, right? All of a sudden comes back, you know, flooding back to you like, well, why do we start this company? And it was to potentially offer something that would be really impactful and, and help patients and, and their families. And all of a sudden, now you're in this position where you're like, hey, I see how we can do that. It all of a sudden feels close at hand. Certainly from a biotech timeline perspective, it feels close at hand. And it's really kind of changes your perspective about things. Now, I will say the company has grown tremendously since that data readout, but I think our culture are really trying to keep in much the same. I think one of the powers of biotech and small companies is that people can see what they're responsible for. They can see how that impacts the success or failure of the organization. And they, I think, get a lot of reward out of seeing that. There's a responsibility, obviously, that comes with it, but I think there's a tremendous reward that comes from it. And if we can continue to build a company with people who believe in what we're doing and want to be a part of it, I, different personalities, different background, different experiences, but I think that's a pretty powerful kind of unifying mission. Yeah, it seems, you know, it's rare when a founder is not the CEO long term and you seem to have had a very very productive relationship with a more focused role and I'm curious, you know, what's ahead for Karuna now? Where are you from a development perspective? Yeah, we're in phase 3 development with CarXT for schizophrenia and are also pursuing dementia related psychosis which is you know, where the antipsychotic benefit of xenomaline was first discovered. So, you know, CAR-XT still, you know, is kind of the dominant focus for us. And, you know, fortunately, we put ourselves in a position where phase three is really doing the same thing that we already did in phase two on, you know, a slightly larger scale. And, and we're running two studies, I suppose, just one, but we really have to continue to do the same things that we've been doing. But I think our vision is also much broader than just CAR-XT. You know, just car XT feels a little bit funny to say since we're obviously very, very excited about that. But, you know, I think we see opportunities, untapped opportunities in the psychiatry and CNS space, again, because of part of the idea that there's just a lot less people operating here. If I told you that there was really interesting discoveries in immuno oncology that no one's paying attention to, it maybe seem a little far-fetched, but I, I think those things exist in psychiatry and CNS. And, you know, we have the opportunity, I think, to not just potentially bring the first novel antipsychotic drug to market since, frankly, the first one, which was 69 years ago, but also, I think, an opportunity to hopefully reinvigorate psychiatry and CNS as an area of active development. Because again, I, I think the challenge has never been need, right? There's a tremendous need. There's an underserved patient population, certainly in schizophrenia and many other disorders. But how do you get people to, to get back into the space, to get excited about it? Because if we can be an example of what you can do and what you can accomplish, and that motivates people to start that next company or invest in that next company or take my career towards that research. I mean, those are the things we need to really reinvigorate this space. And, and I think that provides us an opportunity, you know, a long-term opportunity to develop ourselves as a leading psychiatry-focused CNS kind of specialty company. 
But if we can have an influence on others, we have, I, I think, the ability to have an impact that's much larger than ourselves. And I think that was also part of that perspective change, you know, with the phase two data readout was we went from the company that was like, well, we can be like company X, Y, or Z. And now we found ourselves in this circumstance where I don't want to make it sound like we've accomplished everything, right? We still have a lot to accomplish and a lot to do. But to think about ourselves as something that could be inspiring to others, I think is a really powerful point of view. Awesome. Well, you know, obviously you guys have invested a fair amount of time and energy to see that vision hopefully come to fruition. And it seems like you're sort of right at the precipice of realizing it. I'm curious, like, you know, given that over the past decade, we've seen, I'd say a true transformation in terms of how life science companies are grown and built and developed. Given what you've seen, do you feel like we are in the golden age of biotech right now? It's an interesting question. I mean, I haven't been around through the whole history of biotech, obviously, but you know, I was talking with um, another person in the company about this topic maybe a week or two ago. And you know, sitting in the entrepreneurial community 10 or 15 years ago, you know, the ability to recruit talent, I think, has dramatically changed the ecosystem of support as a small company. I mean, all the expertise you need to develop a drug in, in today's environment. I don't know if there's any company that has all of it, quite frankly, but it's all out there. You just need to go and find it and acquire it or, or find the right people and, and work with them. And obviously, from a financial perspective, you can raise you know, the amount of money you need to do real development, right? I mean, it used to be biotech was on a shoestring. It was cutting corners, getting there quicker with less people and less resources. And now if you build a story, you can attract... You know, I think the level of resource you need to really develop these products in the same way that perhaps large companies would. And so I think the ability for biotech companies to take an idea and really develop it, I think is really unparalleled. I would say, I think from that perspective, it's kind of the golden age. It could continue to get better. I don't want to limit it, limit it from that perspective, but a big part of my job still at the company is identifying what resources are needed, right? And that can be financial resources, human resources, expertise, bandwidth, partners, it can be any of these things, right? So a lot of this is still following those basic principles of how do you validate an idea? How do you prove an idea? How do you support an idea? But the support that you can garner and the resources you can garner just seem to be pretty unparalleled historically. Interesting. Curious if when you think about the extent of resources being made available how much of it is incremental net new that's coming into the space versus perhaps just a, a reallocation of what was there? So as an example, I think it's safe to say that uh, larger pharma companies perhaps uh, rely more heavily on emerging companies today than they did say a decade ago. So how much of it do you think is truly sort of the movement of resources from what would have been another building for a large pharma company, right? Into investing into emerging companies versus net new capital coming in from the outside world? Yeah, it's a little harder for me to give you, I think, a cogent answer on that part. I mean, it does feel like the ecosystem has expanded, the people interested have expanded, the realization of biotech industry as something where innovation is happening that's worthwhile from an investment perspective. I mean, you know, when I talk to friends and family you know, who have nothing to do with biotech. And maybe it's just because they know me, but it feels like they're a little more aware of it than they were 10 years ago. And, you know, part of that is, I think, also the household nature of all the, you know, the tech companies that have been built as well, right? The idea of 
entrepreneurs are out there. They're building companies that are influencing our lives. And biotech doesn't have the sort of consumer brand aspect as much, but it does feel to me like more people are aware and, and the system's getting bigger. I will say maybe less talking about reallocation from big pharma to smaller biopharma biotech. I certainly feel like the grassroots entrepreneurship and innovation has changed. And maybe just to focus on the scientific part of that, you know, I, I obviously was fortunate enough to go to MIT for grad school where there's always been a focus on like the practical aspects of research and the practical implications and applications of research. But everyone wants to start a company now. You're a professor, you're publishing papers. There's a lot more focus on, you know, how is this relevant and what can it turn into? And so I, I look at the front end of the innovation ecosystem and think that the amount of attention and resource that's put into that feels like it's grown tremendously in the last 10 to 15 years. And certainly that's part of kind of fuel for the fire as well, as you think about the number of opportunities there are to put time into or, or invest in. And you mentioned something around recruiting of talent and how that's changed. I'm curious to hear your perspective on what's been going on there. I mean, I, I interviewed three people today, so it, it's kind of funny. I mean, you know, it's a little bit anecdotal, but the questions 10 years ago were about, you know, how much money does the company have? Do we have what we need to do? Like what happens if this study fails? And it was really a lot about focusing on the risks. And I don't hear that as much. I hear a lot more about focus on what the opportunities are, right? The opportunities to have influence, the opportunities to have experience working on a project or program you're really passionate about and build those kind of skill sets. And it's a little different skill set, right? I mean, you know, it's in many ways being an aggregator of information and, and resources rather than I'm the expert in this one thing and I have my part that I'm, you know, helping kind of turn the crank on things. So I feel like there's just a realization that from a career perspective, and I'm, you know, biased due to my age, but I didn't leave grad school thinking I need to get a job at XYZ Pharma Company and work there for 30 years. And that's going to be my career because obviously I think Karuna is going to be here for a long time, but if it's not, there's like a thousand companies across the street that are going to be looking for people who have expertise and, you know, have either run companies or built companies or been a part of companies. And so it feels like there's a big onus on the experience that you have and the things that you learn. And there's just so many opportunities that it feels like if you're talented and hardworking, the next opportunity is just always around the corner. Great. Well, Andrew, on that note, thank you for sharing your inspiring entrepreneurial journey with our listeners. It was, it was great to have you on and look forward to having you on again in the future. Yeah, this has been great. And I'm fortunate enough that I get to talk a lot about our story from a company perspective on a somewhat regular basis. And, you know, it doesn't get old to me. So always happy to talk about it when there's the opportunity. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.